I stood mesmerized by the song of desert cicadas, marveling at the beauty all around me. Such desolation, this western plateau, this battlefield of rugged species, hardened and thistled in desperate competition for what would never be enough water. Most would lose their struggle with thirst on this day, pounded by a merciless sun. But in this moment, this plain of death and pestilence was painted in pink splashes by that murderous sun, now docile, still awakening, patiently waiting to unleash her fury. Ricky was calling to me. I couldn't see my friend of 20 years, but I could hear him as if he was standing at my side. He called again, his voice betraying a level of concern we cowboys take great pains to press down, to deny. This guy's gonna kill me! I gave my scrawny nag a soothing pat on her mane and a whisper, climbed aboard the saddle and gave her a gentle kick to my heels and a tug on her reins in the direction I presumed I would find Ricky. We climbed but a short rise, and there, covered in the same pink paint of morning, was Ricky and the assailant, the aforementioned this guy. It seemed... (laughs) It seemed imminent that this guy was indeed on the verge of beating Ricky to death. I hopped from my horse, drawing my pistol and fixing it on the disheveled stranger. I fired a shot, fortunately missing Ricky, but unfortunately missing the stranger as well. I stepped closer and fired again. This time my aim was true. (laughs) The bullet left my gun and hit the stranger in his side, but he continued his assault on Ricky undeterred. Who is he? I asked. Before Ricky could answer, the stranger connected a powerful right hook to Ricky's jaw. His body went limp before it even hit the ground. Oh man, he killed me, Ricky complained. I got this, I assured him, raised my pistol and fired again. This shot hit the stranger right in his chest because he had already turned to advance on me, his eyes two fiery coals. The filthy drifter came at me, relentless, raining down blow after blow. I emptied the rest of my revolver into him, point blank, but the assault continued unabated. It was as if I forgot how to fight. I just couldn't get my arms to work. I couldn't manage to return a single blow because I didn't know what button to press. And ever-present was the echo of Ricky's original entreaty. This guy's gonna kill me! This stranger, this dust-covered, invulnerable drifter, this psychotic NPC who murdered my friend and I that day without so much as airing one word of his grievance and made us part of that thirsty, dead landscape splashed in pink. (laughs) So beautiful. That was great. <laughs> and it was That's great. He was a drifter. We have no <laughs> idea. He just showed up out of the blue and beat us both to death. <laughs> and now for something completely machinima.
Welcome to, and now for something completely machinima, the machinima and VR related podcast. Um, I am uh, one of your hosts, Phil Rice, and with me is Ricky Grove. Howdy. Tracy, I'm forgetting your last name. <laughs> <laughs> Harwood, hey! hey how are you doing? And Damian Valentine. Hi there. We have all been, uh, we've all known each other for quite a few years and been friends and had this common interest for many years. And it's it's my pleasure to, uh, to be with you guys to talk to you again. Yep, same here. Happy Absolutely. to talk to you. Likewise. So, so I want to just give a, a quick reminder up front that the feedback from you, the listener, is vital to this show. Um, it's not that we didn't enter the show without any plans, but we definitely entered into it with the idea that your feedback is going to shape the direction and the emphasis that we put into play on this show. Uh, and we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to contact us through a variety of different ways. Those are all listed over on our website, which is completelymachinima.com. Or you can click the Talk to Us button right at the top of our website. And it'll take you right to that section of the page, which shows the email address you can do. You can text us at a phone number if you like. Uh, you can leave us a voice message through a service that we found called Reverb.chat. Um, and for actually for any, any audio messages like that, we might even uh, play your audio message right here on the show and then respond to it. Um, and then there's also a Discord server. We've got a Facebook page. So we're trying to be everywhere that you'll be so that it'll be easy for you to tell us what you think of the show, how we did, and what you'd like to see us discuss in the future. So uh, please please be sure to uh, take a moment to do that. Um, it's, it's, it's vital to, uh, to knowing how we should proceed going forward. And uh, I'm going to thank you in advance for doing that. Now, coming up on today's show, we've got a, a little bit of Machinima news to discuss. We've got a very interesting bevy of films um, some, some really great variety that uh, just all of us independently went out and found films we want to talk about, and it couldn't be a more diverse little group of films. So we're very excited to talk to you about that. We've got an interview with a special guest coming up later in the show, and then a little bit of group discussion at the end there. So thanks for joining us. Connection troubles trying to get to where we were playing on the same server. We were so happy when it, we finally got it to work. And it's like, all right. And then the first thing I hear out of Ricky is, oh man, this guy's going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> what? And I'm thinking to myself, who did you piss off? I mean, we haven't even been here 10 seconds. But apparently this guy just came running over, just, Aah! and just started wailing. Just started wailing on us. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and wow. never, yeah, just didn't utter a word, just grunting like an animal and just beat us to death. He was unarmed. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't even learned the control to like throw a punch. I was like, oh, what do I do? So I'm I'm just clicking my unloaded a, gun. Did you not turn the horse's backside on him? Could you well, I was that? off my horse at the we, point. We I tried to get on the horse and he just kept hitting me in the kidneys. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, he didn't even have a name, though. I mean, it was, it was just so... No. Drifter, I think. Well, we called him that. It didn't have yeah. any kind of indication no name, of who no it was. Bill, it the the butcher, no nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. after this happened, it kills us both. And then we get rejoined together. 
And then Rick, I hear Ricky say, Oh man, there he is. He's coming for me again. I mean, just, it was just crazy. I just took off running and managed to outrun him. (laughs) (laughs) It was so surreal. And so, yeah, about the time that we got clear of the guy and thought, okay, we can actually go around exploring, then boom, we got disconnected again. Yeah. Uh-huh. What did you learn from that experience? The team play on Red Dead is pretty screwed. I don't know how other people do it. Yeah. I mean, we managed to, to end up being together for, what, five minutes, I think, exploring this odd little place. Yeah. But then suddenly Phil got kicked off again, you know. And just try it. There, there are tools within the game to be able to join up with like you can join the online and you're just there, but it's this grid of servers across, you know, the whole planet, I assume, but certainly across the country for Ricky and I. And so we could both be in the same town. And in fact, at one point we were, and I'm like, dude, there's a butcher shop right in the middle of this little town. I'm standing right in front of the butcher. And Ricky was in that same town too, going, you're not here, man. That's when we realized that there are different sessions. So there are some tools built into the game for, find a friend, and then either join their session or invite them to yours. I mean, most mm. of the time, I would say more than nine times out of ten uh, as, as a frequency rate, the connection would just fail to connect at all. Yeah. it would, And then you have to restart the part of the game to even try again. And so, and when it would work, yeah, it was just very unstable. We're just all of a sudden, just one of us would disappear for the other. Because we were disconnected. We're still in the game, still walking through the same field, still getting beat by the same stinky drifter, but <laughs> now, now we're not even there to help each other. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a frustrating experience for sure. Mm. All right, Ricky, you have a, a news item you want to discuss today uh, related to uh, VR and Steam. Why don't you tell us a little about that? Sure, sure. Well, I've been thinking a lot about VR since I do graphic um, reporting for Renderosity.com, and I've attended all the SIGGRAPHs, and I've seen the rise in development of VR. And I, I was thinking, well, how does that impact or how does that interest the machinima filmmaker? And I wanted to share a couple um, uh, bits of data that Steam, which is uh, the major online platform for VR for most people, uh, they released back in December their 2020 uh, data. Uh, this was reported through RoadToVR.com, which is a great site, by the way, if you're interested in keeping up with the news. And the Steam said that the, they saw 1.7 million users, new users, experience a VR game for the first time in 2020. And their overall uh, users jumped to more than 104 million VR sessions. Now, that's a huge increase from uh, the previous year. And one of the most interesting factors in that is that 90% of those VR users were mobile-based, not PC, which I thought hmm. was incredible. In 20, They also reported in 2016, uh, the, uh, there were about $6 billion worth of money was made. Now it's $20 billion in last year. So that's a threefold increase. So the point is, is that uh, virtual reality 
for everyday people is growing and growing and growing. They see it, they see it as being a huge marketplace in the future. Now, some of that Steam success was due to the fact that they released Half-Life Alex in a VR format. And the Half-Life community is huge. Um, I almost leapt in then, but the best uh, VR headset was one that was designed by Valve themselves, and that was cost a grand. And I just wasn't willing to spend that kind of money to get that experience. However, now you can get uh, the, what is it called? The uh, Quest. Quest, thank you. Quest 2 is $299 for a 64 gigabyte, $399 for a 256 gigabyte. And that's without a connection. That's a wireless connection. And you don't have to have monitors. You don't have to have sensors or anything like that. So you can jump in to VR creation or VR consume uh, as a consumer for about 300 bucks. And it's very highly rated. Uh, I didn't get all the details from Steam as to their um, sales uh, online, but Quest 2 has just been selling out. The problem isn't so much... uh, uh, it's a matter of supply. Sure. <laughs> Nobody can get it because it, it's selling like crazy. So, and very quickly, I just wanted to mention that VR content is primarily two types. It's 360 degree videos and it's interactive 3D simulations. Now, when you play a game, you're playing the character, right? But when you're playing a VR uh, character, you become the character inside of the game. So it's a, it's a different matter of perspective. Now, I've been experimenting over the last year with 360-degree videos because I bought a really good um, video camera. And essentially, if you can imagine, if you if you got two uh, cameras and you put them back-to-back, mm-hmm. and you recorded at the same time, that would be a 360-degree video. And uh, Adobe Premiere... Um, Final Cut Pro and many other video platforms have all instituted editing 360 videos, including transitions, including being able to set the placement of the camera when you first enter into the world. So it strikes me as a very interesting and logical transition for the machinima filmmaker who wants to, instead of being outside of the game, uh, providing an experience for uh, traditional film experience for people to watch the game, instead step inside of the game or inside of the game world and create a 360 video in which you guide people's experience because you can do, say, five 360 video sessions and then stitch them together with transitions. So, for example, if you were in Half Life, you could set up a 360 video at one location do a 360 video at another location and stitch those two together with narrative. You can do your own uh, voiceover narrative for them. So uh, the point I'm trying to make is that the future of VR is a fascinating one. Um, I can see Hugh Hancock with a glass of wine going, oh, I think that'd be great. That'd be great. Oh, let's do something. Let's do something right now and be up all night trying to create something. But I think it's a a viable and interesting possibility for machinima filmmakers and for those people who are just interested in VR. It's affordable. 
The technology is there. Oh, and one last thing. They made an excellent tool called Multibrush, which uh, used to be a tilt brush, which is a way to create inside of VR, create 3D objects mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and all of that. They made that open source last year. Whoa. So now it's run by the open source community. So you have a tool, you have the medium, it's reasonably priced. I think it's worth a, worth checking out. Sounds great. What What's your view on, um, I know you, you sort of alluded to how you could tell stories with 360 video, but I think that's really quite hard to do, um, to sort of create a, a flowing story in, in, in 360. Well, you have to reimagine storytelling for one thing, and much of it has to do with perspective because you have to be able to understand that the viewer experiencing the story is going to see it in a different way than they would if it was done like a proscenium, you know, a, a picture frame in front of them where you can guide them. Instead, they, they can turn around and look behind them or they can look over at another place. Plus, 360 videos don't allow you to move within the video, meaning your place in the 360 video is determined by the camera position. Mm. And it's static. That's different than a VR 3D interactive simulation. So in a 3D simulation, you can move around and do all kinds of stuff. Google had a series of VR creations in which they released them. And one of them was a 360 and it took place inside of a car. And the car was moving. Uh, but what they did was mm -hmm. put the car with a green screen outside of it. And then the person was inside the car and you could look and you could see as the thing traveled, which I thought was an ingenious way. And it might be a, go towards answering your question, Tracy, about mm. how to. Uh, how, the challenge, I think, is directing the viewer's attention, being able to take their attention and put it on places so they can capture the story that you want to tell. But fundamentally, it changes the way you the way you understand story. And I think we're still in the process of trying to work that out. Mm. Yeah, it seems like it, it would involve, that type of storytelling would involve a similar skill set to what uh, video game designers, like uh, some of the Bioware titles I'm thinking of, where, or even Half-Life for that matter, where the cinematics are happening within the game there. You know, you walk into a room and players start having a conversation that maybe you're supposed to interact with or not. And it's happening there, but that there's nothing stopping you from turning around and looking the other direction or whatever. They have to right. account for all that. It's a it's a it's a, it's a much uh, less like you said. It's a less controlled environment for the viewer than it would be for film. Typical film is well, the director tells you where to look, and in some cases, using you know uh, uh, depth of field, even narrows it down even more. That you're supposed to look at this specific thing in the frame. And this is a much more open thing with, yeah, a lot more moving parts, if you will. Uh, and it's interesting. It, it's, it seems like it would be very, very challenging to create. As a sound designer, I think of it often in terms of sound. Sound is, is one of those things in, a, in, in film and in machinima that is often added to enrich the scene or to give an emotional response to it or to... Uh, add realism to it. I think in VR, it can be a, a stronger tool than in film because it can help guide the viewer towards attention. Absolutely. Because they'll react to a sound or they'll react to music 
or something that you could use via a sound effect to direct their attention in a way that doesn't happen in uh, traditional film. Sure. So would you need spatial audio for that as well? I would assume you would, wouldn't you? I think you would. Um, I, it's, spatial audio is recorded, to, to my knowledge. I did well, My experiments were with my Halloween yard haunt. Every year, Lisa and I do a big, elaborate yard haunt. Um, I mean, it's big. It's all kinds of stuff going on with sound and lighting and everything. And um, I place the 360 camera in four different positions. And then when I watched it, all of the sound was located according to where it was in real life. Um, I think, however, you can add sound that's spatially oriented 360 oriented in terms of if you wanted to do sound editing or sound mixing on it. So I'm not 100% sure about that because I haven't mixed the 360 video, but some of the video editing software that I've played around with has options for 5.1 sounds and you can you kind of get a little compass to place where the sound is. So I imagine it'll be mm-hmm. something like that, but even more elaborate. So you'd kind of get, um, I guess you would have like a, a compass and it would give you some indication of what is going to be in each direction and then you can place the sound according to that but i'm just kind of guessing that that's what would make sense to me if i was creating the software tracy i believe you've got a story you wanted to talk about uh something related to brilliant game studios yeah um so brilliant game studios are about well I say about uh sometime later this year going to be releasing ultimate epic battle simulator 2 um, so this game <laughs> is literally epic. It will let you run millions of characters simultaneously on screen with a planned release date in the autumn. Um, of course, it, it's following the modder's favourite version one, which was released in 2017 and which was built on Unity. So it's not surprising that it's going to be built on Unity again, I believe. Um, and what it allows you to do is create um, battle royale scenes. So version two will handle apparently a hundred times more characters on screen and in far greater detail and quality. I think that promises to be quite an interesting game. And uh, with it, you'll be able to create literally (laughs) eye-watering battles with hundreds of thousands and even millions of characters. And in Sandbox, you can generate infinite army sizes, according to the the description um, uh, that Brilliant have put out. Um, There's also going to be a a first-person shooter view where you can um, play through the eyes of a soldier fighting off hordes and masses. Um, I think what's interesting with this one, though, um, is that it's going to be using uh, new crowd rendering and AI technology, which will require some kind of heavyweight GPU. Uh, and the developer's aim is to ensure that every individual has highly advanced decision-making and animation, bringing this um, physics to a scale that we've never really seen before. So uh, they'll be running thousands of ragdolls and millions of physics-based objects. Um, it sounds like it's the physics engine to me, which is going to be determining its release date. Um, it appears to be in relatively early stages of development at present. So it's one to look out for later this year. I wouldn't like to say that it's going to make the autumn date, but that's what they're suggesting. And if you want to see what um, version one is capable of, uh, there's a a really great video on YouTube, um, which apparently has something like 11,000 penguins versus 
5,000 Santa Claus in this army battle scene. So you can, you can have a look at, you can have a look at that. It's, it's quite a lot of fun, but um, you can download the game for about $15 on steam. So it's a, it's a great thing to, to think about if you want to stage some of these epic battles uh, in the future. Well, I think I better start writing my scripts for one of those big epic battles now. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. My favorite was reindeer versus Reindeer versus zombies. That was the one that I wanted to see. <laughs> reindeer kicking out at the zombies, and the zombies are falling, and they're swat. Oh, my God, it was incredible. Oh, man. I looked up a little bit about the tech on this, and one of the ways that they're able to generate so many um, uh, figures is that they don't use bone-based uh, technology for them. They're skinned, but they're not boned. And that allowed them to uh, to be able to create a lot more than you normally would. And I didn't fully understand how the the, uh, animation could occur, uh, but they have managed to solve it without actually using bones for their characters. Hmm. Yeah, that's a technical detail. That was fascinating. Yeah, I I read that too, but... um... Yeah, I mean, I think a lot hangs on the on the GPU that they're going to be developing, and and you know, one of the challenges, of course, at the moment is that there's a bit of a GPU shortage, isn't there? Um, with yeah. uh, especially the yeah. new uh, Nvidia line. Absolutely. I was going to say everybody's uh, queuing up to get their Nvidia, and there's, uh, they're not getting those uh, very quickly, and that's to do with chip manufacturer, as I understand it. So there will be a challenge with this, I'm sure. But it sounds like a really good fun game. Good, good thing to have in your um, arsenal of machinima creating tools, I think. The, 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 one of the YouTube things was a guy who, um, on this site, who uh, had played the first one, and he was uh, reviewing the second one in its uh, current sort of beta uh, state. And it started up, and he was his cynical guy, and he goes, oh, well, I've seen all this before. Yeah, yeah, it's the same generation. And then it moves, the camera keeps moving on that battlefield to another area. And he goes, oh, wow, they've got another battlefield. And then it went to a third area, and he goes, there's there's more? And it kept going to a fourth, and then a fifth, and then a sixth. And by the time the guy was just raving about, oh, my God, the billions of the other. He was just going crazy. It was so funny. It was so funny because it was true. No matter where you went, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of these things fighting each other. It was hilarious. Yeah. Now, speaking of uh, new innovations, if I'm not mistaken, Damien, you're going to be talking about uh, metahumans? Um, right? Yeah, the um, Epic's new Epic uh, Epic's new MetaHuman Creator. It's a uh, it's a character creation tool um, which was announced uh, just this last week, and um, it's designed to create photorealistic characters that you can use in video games or um, in our case, I imagine it'd be very popular for people making machinima. And the video that they used to um, reveal this technology, it starts off with these human characters talking. And the first time I watched it, I thought, I didn't realize they were animated. I thought that was a real person that I was looking at. Hmm. Uh, And then they start talking and it kind of shows off the sort of facial animation that um, these character models are able to do. 
and again it's so realistic um so what they're, they're doing is you can use um facial mocap through um the live link face app mm. so you can record the motion capture on your um iphone and it will feed into the software and um animate the characters that way uh and then they kind of showed off some of the character creation itself with all these different um options for skin color um shaping choosing the shape of different features and you got slider bars to um you know not make the nose bigger or um stick out more or whatever you want to do um and then you've got these characters created you choose different hair and different outfits it's not available yet but there is a um, there's kind of a, a trial copy with two characters that you can play around with um, available now on the website. Um, I haven't had a chance to give that a try yet, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what I can do. And I've seen a couple of videos that people have made um, testing it out and you've seen what they've done with it. And it looks very impressive. Yeah, I was very impressed with it. And Epic, you know, they're cash rich right now and they've got um, a lot of research going on i think this is uh, going to be a, a a creative tool that's just going to grow and grow and grow the one of the concerns i have though is um it's part of a drive towards realism that i think is typical of american culture in general especially in uh, 3d we often look at things that are more realistic as being better in some way or more dramatic. But I'd like to point out that uh, Tracy's film last week, Beast, um, had characters that were not realistic at all. In fact, they were uh, low poly res. And yet the impact of those characters was equally as good as anything that could be highly realistic. If you took characters created in a metahumans and then redid a Beast in it, I'm not sure it would be any better. Uh, there's something about the low poly quality of it that makes the horror of that situation even more intense. So I think um, one of the problems with having hyper-realistic characters is that it it doesn't really make the story more realistic because the emphasis is not on the characters, it's on the story. It's the realism of the story. So I think, although I'm glad to see that there's more realism going on, I mean, uh, Real Illusion had Character Creator 3 came out this last year in which uh, you had subsurface scattering on the on the skin. It had all sorts of blotches and everything. And I'm glad because I always hated to see 3D films that had these clay-faced characters. It always just drove me crazy. Early iClone films had that problem, and that's why I didn't like iClone at the beginning. They've changed that, though, and Character Creator 3 has allowed them to do that. So a certain amount of realism, I think, is is good because it doesn't take you out of the story. But I think the key thing is that the story is where the realism lies, not in the realism of the characters. Mm, it's an interesting point because... So there. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. But the, um, the point that I've seen being discussed quite a lot is... is um, in relation to the fact that they're not real enough, and that uh, you know the uh, the animation quality um, gives way to the uncanny valley because the mouth doesn't quite move as you expect it, or the eyes are not quite doing uh, what what folks are expecting. So there's a bit of a kickback in the community, uh, the Unreal community, about the lack of realism. Hmm. 
um, which is mm. an interesting um, an interesting point, I think, because I, I take your point re- really strongly on board. I think that's an absolute, absolutely critical thing. If you're not, you know, you can't just rely on the assets to tell the story. Um, you have to tell the story using the full range of um, means available to you, and that is the narrative and the the voice mm. acting and um, the sets and the scene and what have you, not just the characters. But I think it's an interesting development um, that uh, they you know they're creating these these assets that presumably give people that have no experience of of um, creating characters some opportunity to play with the tools that. Um, that give them potentially lifelike features. Oh yeah, yeah, I see that. I wanted to ask you, Damien, um, is AI technology used in the uh, metahumans? Um, I'm not entirely sure because even though they've put some details up, there's still a lot that they haven't said. And I didn't see anything about AI in what I read. I imagine there must be some use of AI somewhere, but it's kind of vague on the details of how this actually works. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's, I think there probably is some AI technology in it because some of the things that you're talking about, Tracy, that uncanny valley effect is by the fact that everything is so uniform on a face. Whereas mm-hmm. in real human faces, there are all sorts of randomness. Um, and I think AI is perfect. For creating that sense of randomness, so maybe that's one way they're going to go. And now that I think is really cool, um, because you can do—you don't have to have such a hyper real face if you're able to have random color blotches, random skin tones, random poor skin, good skin, uh, and AI handles that. So deep deep learning algorithms handle all of that stuff really well. Yeah, I agree. I think. You do need that randomness to to create the the more realistic characters. You need that randomness to make them feel more natural, because human faces are not perfect. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Coming up next, Z-SPAN catches up with Chip Vichyswa at the World Fat Cat Investor Conference. Introduce myself? Hey, you don't know the most successful CEO in the world right now? Come on! Ah, okay, okay, for the listeners. (laughs) Hey, I'm Chip Vichyswa, and I'm here at the FCIC conference. That's Fat Cat Investor Conference to you. And I'm super proud to say that the uh, MP has just won the top company award in the FCIC group of 100 power companies in the world today. Yay! (laughs) Yeah! Well, my brother and I had some money to burn, and we wanted to get into game world big time, you know? We watched some machinima a few years ago on um, machinecinema.com, and I thought, whoa, this is our ticket in. So we contacted the kids who were running the site, and we gave them a few bucks to buy the whole kit and caboodle. And uh, VTube was starting up at the time, so we decided to move everything over to VTube and start our worldwide domination of the game kid market right there. (laughs) 
business model. We saw a bunch of kids playing games 24-7. We want to put them to work. We told them that we'd give them cash for every machinima they make. <laughs> That's right. And I thought that was a good idea as long as it wasn't too much money, you know? <laughs> so now we got over 2,000 of these little shits making movies and making money. Yeah. Hear that, kid? Sign up for a $1,000 bonus right now. $1,000? Yeah, we call these little kids uh, content chipmunks or CCRs, you know. Give the little chipmunks some money while they play games and they feel like a grown-up for a while, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, we definitely plan on creating a global amusement channel at VTube Marketing, strictly for the boys, 14 to 24 gamers, baby. We saw dollar signs on these little pricks' faces, and that was that. We are now the number one channel on VTube with over one billion pickups and zero drops. One billion, baby. <laughs> ah, f ideals. My brother Tip and I are driven by money, pure and simple. But that doesn't mean, you know, we're insensitive, you know? We want to help these kids learn something they can take into their adult years. That's right. You know what I mean? What he said. What? Who said that? You got a name? I'd like to pay a visit to that little sh**. <laughs> no, no, seriously. We got so many content chipmunks that are always telling me how happy they are making machinima and playing games. With that many kids, you're bound to have a couple of bad apples who just want attention. Tip and I aren't losing any sleep over it, especially since we're up no. so late counting our cash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, listen, I'll give it to you straight. Hey, kid, you want to play games 24-7 and make money while you're doing it? Sign up for Machinima Pimp today. Your best friend's doing it, your schoolmates are doing it, your game buddies are doing it, hell, even your sister's doing it. Yeah, so sign up now and get a free content chipmunk package with a thousand bucks. We want to pimp you now. We need to get that. Yeah, so, sorry, I, I got to get this. Hey, Rudy, hey, what's up, friend? Hey, listen, you can't, can't talk here. It's not private. What? Saying? You tell those c**ks that they can't do business politely, I'll cut their c**ks off. Now, who is it? A 10-year-old? Oh, man. Oh, I hate kids. I hate kids. I hate kids. I hate them. All right, all right. I'll call you right back. What's he saying? Let's go, Tip. We got another little chipmunk asshole threatening the lawsuit. Oh, God. You're going to edit all that out, right? All right, so uh, it's time to talk about some films, and uh, everyone had a very interesting picks this week. Uh, Damien, let's start with yours. The film I've chosen this month is called The Hamilton Incident, and it's made with Elite Dangerous, and it's a story about the spaceship investigating this uh, barren planet, and there's kind of this abandoned colony, which they land, they kind of do a flyover and scan it, and then they land, and the little rover comes out, and he's looking around, and they've got no idea what's happened to any of the people there. Roger that. Keep me apprised of the situation. I'm approaching the command station right now. I'm about to head out of the SRV and take a look at their computers. There is a lot of stuff here. Looks like we've made a big score. Stand by for a moment, Commander. Seismic activity has just gone through the roof. What the... I don't want to say any more than that, because it's, it's only a short video, and I, I, I just don't want to give any spoilers, but it's... It's a very creepy, spooky sci-fi film. It kind of reminded me of Alien. Um, but one of the reasons I liked it was it's told almost entirely through external shots of the vehicles. So you, you see the, the spaceship flying around and you see the rover driving around. And there's a couple of shots of characters, uh, one walking across the bridge of the ship uh, at the beginning, but you don't see any characters themselves. It's all t told through shots of the vehicles and you get the voiceover of the two, the pilot of the ship and the, the guy driving the, the rover. 
and they're, they're talking over via radio, and that's how the story is told. And I just thought that's a really great way of telling a story because um, so many so many stories we see rely on seeing the human characters or whatever characters that we're dealing with rather than the vehicles that they're driving and uh i was really impressed by it and i thought this is the, one, this is the film i was wanted to share with everyone this month it felt it, it had a very twilight zone feel for me like the old rod serling episodes of twilight zone with uh the the, the mystery and and a lot happening that you can't see you know um the the use of that psychological type of terror that's not about explosions or monsters or anything of the sort you know it's it's uh maybe a panicked sounding voice and and uh things like that and again i don't want to give any spoilers away either but uh i i found it very enjoyable yeah it's it's a it's a great little mystery yeah where it ends you don't you don't want to go in do you and uh explore and <laughs> and do you do you ever find out what happens um no, and I quite like that. The, the, yes. I did notice that at the end of the video is a teaser. There's a link to a teaser video where they were going to continue the story. Uh, and it's kind of a, a distress call that's being received. But you, they never actually got around to telling that story. And part of me is sad about that because they did it so well. And it'd be nice to see them do more storytelling. But that particular story, I don't want to know any more of it because um, it's that mystery is scary and not knowing makes it scary. As soon as they explore that, it takes that mystery out and then it's not scary anymore. Yeah. I think the director's name was Vindicator Jones. Was that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. He apologizes on the YouTube channel for not having a sequel, which I'm glad because he needed to feel guilty for that because I wanted to know what happened unlike, <laughs> unlike you guys it gave me nightmares that did yes you know now anything that's got ships and planets and monsters and technology is just an, an immediate plus for me my my pleasure threshold for science fiction is extremely low so it doesn't make any difference I mean planet of vampires mollusks giant mollusks on a strange planet i'm there 100 percent. so i just love this film but interestingly the same day i watched this film i reread an essay by michael nietzsche called claiming its space machinima and in it he brings up a concept concept of uh, machinima that i had completely forgotten and that's inside and outside machinima Inside Machinima are filmmakers, and it was developed by Machinima filmmakers to describe different ways that people created Machinima, Machinima content. Inside mm -hmm. Machinima are filmmakers who built their stories, built the, the plots, the structure, the look of the film inside of the game. Outside Machinima are people who brought outside, uh, they used the game engine itself and models or 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 effects outside of the game engine into the game to make the machinima. This is a perfect example of inside machinima filmmaking. And um, 
it made me think when Michael's writing about this, it made me wonder, well, then how do you evaluate a machinima film that's made from the inside versus the outside? I mean, do you use the same cinematic criteria to evaluate it? Because if you do, then the lack of filming humans in the episode is a problem. Because although you found it interesting, Damien, it's because you like that inside approach to filmmaking. And I suspect that the machinimal filmmakers didn't plan that as an aesthetic choice. They did it because it was easier to do it that way hmm. and faster. And that's exactly how early machinima functions. So if you look at it from that point of view, you go, well, hey, that's great. There's no problem. But in Alien, they would have never not have human coverage in there. They would have taken the camera and put it on the person when the guy goes, what the hell was that? You know, or what is this? Or he's looking around concerned, or they would have cut back to the scene in the on the big ship where the guy's going, oh, the, the, the screens are going wild, Captain. The screens are going wild. So which way do you the, – the problem for me is – how do you judge a film like that? Personally, I don't really care. I just watch it, and if I like it, I like it. And that's why I prefaced it with, hey, if it's science fiction, I'm there. But it made me wonder, based from Michael's essay, how do, how do, you, do, you, do, do you see a film like this as flawed because it doesn't have coverage, human coverage like that, and that it all emphasizes tech? technology and screens and readouts and things like that? Or is that typical of a, how machinima is? That's just the way it is. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question, but it made me think a lot. I suppose with any film, um, there are te there are limitations, no matter what it is. It could be something someone's doing with their phone, or it could be um, a big budget film. There are still going to be limitations on what can be achieved, and they're, they're working around... Um, what those limitations are that's like, true but i think in a way though i think the guys who made the film the people who made the film love that kind of stuff yeah. and they're people like you damien and me and phil and tracy we like game-based machinima we like it um but the question is do you use my question was do you use cinematic aesthetics to judge a film like that or do you just throw it all away and say, no, this is how machinima works. You either like it or you don't like it. It, it reminds me a lot of um, when Peter Rasmussen's um, Stolen Life film came out. There was a lot of criticism against that because of uh, the lack of um, human actors in it. But um, the criticism of it came down to, uh, you know, the... the the, the fact that it was a great story and told very well as a story without having the great cinematic qualities for the animation as well. So people very quickly forgot the quality of the animation because the story itself was so so good and the voice acting was so good. A little bit like Beast, I suppose, that we were, yes. were talking yeah. about last month. That mm -hmm. um, You know, that's probably true in that one. It was such great voice acting that, that held that one together. And I think that's the same in this one, really, as well, Damien. That you know, the the um, the suspense is achieved with the with the voices and the way that they talk to each other. It was, um, you know, whether or not the actual visuals 
stack up on their own. I, I think, um, no, I don't think they do without the voice acting. Mm. If that's what you call inside versus outside. I'm not sure I've got that distinction in my in my head, really. I understand what you mean, but I don't see them. I don't judge them in that way, I don't think. No, no, this this was an essay written in, what, 2007? Yeah. So it was at the, just after the peak of Machinima, and it was when the whole there was a whole peak of academic uh, writing on the subject. Steady. I just happened to, to read that when I thought it was interesting, and I'd, I'd forgotten that concept. It's mm. another example of how the Machinima community was unique before uh, Machinima Incorporated took over, because... There, a community would make a film like that and they would automatically understand the aesthetics and choices that were made mm -hmm. because it was unique to the community and it had value to the community. That was the audience. The millions of people who were making and watching films, that they were excited by that. Whereas if you took it and you gave it to you know, Pixar or somebody like that, they say, well, it's a cute little story, kids. You know, We, we like it. And that's fine. I mean, but it's a different world. The machinima community is a different world of creating things and has different values. So inevitably, I would say that I think a film like uh, The Hamilton Incident is a fun, enjoyable film. And it doesn't make any difference whether somebody on the outside would say, hey, he didn't have any human coverage in the middle of that. And thinking yeah. about Am I it, making any sense here? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I'm thinking about it as we've been talking. Um, I'm not sure that it would work so well if you could see the characters' faces. Because you've got the mystery of what's happening, but you also got the mystery of you don't know what these guys flying around even look like. If you're if you're staring at their faces as they're doing it, it again it takes away some of the mystery because you're kind of imagining what they look like yourself and it um it could be um someone you know you put their face on it or something like that um and again that makes it even more intense because there's no there isn't that human element to it you're just getting the voice and that's it it's like you're listening to something happening far away like um that famous war of the worlds broadcast over the radio where mm. people thought it was real because it was so right um real again you couldn't see anyone you couldn't see it happening but people thought it was real because they could hear it and it was performed yeah. in such a way that... That's a great analogy. That's yeah. a good analogy, yes. Yeah. Well, speaking of inside versus outside, or, or uh, Tracy, you had an inter interesting film pick well, this yes. week related to a video game, but, but maybe not made in a video game. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. This one is actually a tribute to Halo. It's um, made in Unreal Engine 4 um, by a guy called William Fauscher. And it was released uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it's a piece of cinematic fan art um, uh, by somebody who is basically a, a photography enthusiast. Um, he actually has a, a background in, in game and visual effects. Um, and uh, be, because he had some time on his hands, he, he wanted to create a short... Um, well, actually, no, what he wanted to do was uh, create something so that he could get some nice stills of a Halo character. Um, but uh, he got playing around with it, and before he knew what he was doing, he'd created this 30-second short, and it's absolutely stunning. It's got such an ethereal 
uh, quality to it. Um, what you immediately notice is the lifelike quality of the piece, the, the beautiful lighting, the range of camera angles, and the music that he's selected um, just absolutely com um, complements the piece beautifully. Um, so it's it's a pretty impressive short, but it's actually not a story in any way at all. And we had some debate about this um, and it, and its merit, really, in terms of it being part of this section in our podcast. And frankly, I'm in the camp that we need to be reviewing a breadth of types of creative work here, um, including storytelling uh, and experimental and artistic and documentary and what Tom Jandl would call animation and and everything in between. And this very much, um, to me, falls into that artistic uh, category. Um, but what I liked about it, it was, a, it was just a beautiful homage to Halo. So uh, what did you guys think? Did you have a look at it? Yeah, um, you can tell that the guy who made it is a huge fan of Halo and he wants to uh, express his love for the franchise by creating this video. The first time I watched it, I had took me a moment to realize this is not actually a guy in costume because it, it looks so real. And uh, when the camera pulls back, I had to stop and watch it again. I thought, no, it, it is actually animated. It's not, it isn't someone wearing the, the armored costume, but it just goes to show how much effort he's put into creating this video to have that amount of detail into it. That makes you wonder, is this real or not? I'm going to be the troll under the bridge here. Sorry. <laughs> Bored the hell out of me. Just, I don't like I Halo. I want my 30 seconds back. <laughs> I don't like Halo. I've never been interested in it. Uh, this was just boring, and it was a tech show-off thing. Um which as as for what it is, it did it well, you know. It was attractive, but I just had no interest in it at all. And I take your point at we need to have a wide variety of uh, of things that we're going to be talking about in terms of machinima. And for that reason, I'm glad you included it, but I I didn't get anything out of it. Actually, I'd love to talk to you about another little yeah, film. Why so. don't you? Why don't you? Because oh, then I would be happy and not bored. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched this several times, I have to say, and I and I love it. Um, so for a bit of laugh out loud fun, um, you just have to see this Mando spoof uh, music video uh, made to the L King song "Baby Outlaw." Um, so it's a it's called "Baby Outlaw" and Star Wars. It's, uh, it's showing Grogu and Mandalorian and and Gangster Blurg. Have I said that right? Another unreal film. Um, made by uh, Kite and Lightning, and it's uh, it's basically, uh, according to uh, the video, one man in his bedroom making this uh, film in, in three weeks, and it's got some absolutely stunning lip sync. Um, I'll say. It's, it's awesome, isn't it? It's a really it's good awesome, music video. Awesome. Man, that was just great. I just keep wondering, uh, this guy's bank account has to be filled to the top with dough because <laughs> all of the equipment he's got is very expensive. I mean, that facial rig that it shows him wearing, that's a $5,000 rig there, you know. Um, but it's, so what? Uh, he's got it, and he used it, and he made it, and it's fantastic. It's, it's really, really good. Really good. I'd, I'd be very surprised if this doesn't go um, viral at some point. It's not gone there yet, but... Uh... Definitely get in, get get in there and have a look at this one. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get to see that one yet. I'm looking forward to watching that. 
Oh, it's lovely. It's definitely lovely. worth watching. And funny, funny, the the juxtaposition of the music with the visuals is a, a comic. There's a comic element to it just right there. You know, it's terrific. It is very good. It's, some of it's, the best... it's well done. It's very well done. Yeah. Some of the best use of home motion capture and face motion capture I've seen. Uh, I've seen a lot of... Mm-hmm been keeping an eye on it and sometimes it looks very rough but this is absolutely perfect you'd think it was um like ricky said he's got some very impressive equipment and it it shows and it is done so well yeah you can have all of that expensive equipment but if you don't know how to use it so the guy's got chops very true learned how to use it and he knows what's going on yeah yeah well the other one that you mentioned ricky the um the comp- the Australian competition that that's a that was a whole different ball game that that was uh, uh, there was quite a bit of money thrown into that actually so so the one that won that Cassini Logs um, that was selected by Epic Games and Screen New South Wales to be part of this Unreal Engine real time short challenge um, which, which it ultimately won. Um, but you know the guys that made it are they also have a background in CG um, yeah. artistry and 3D real real time um, artists, particularly special specialising in Unreal, and that's also a really really good film to have a, a look at. It's another short. Let's link that in the show notes so that everybody can get a chance to check those Absolutely. out. Some really good films in that selection. Now, Ricky, you have an Unreal film, uh, Unreal Engine film that's from back in the day. Tell us about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I was inspired by Tracy's uh, throwback uh, choice of The Beast last week. And uh, I came across a movie that I just loved when it came out, and I love it even more. It's called The Ship by Egils Mendes. It was done in Unreal Tournament 2004, using the Unreal Editor of the time, which is a drastically different beast uh, then than it is today. Um, it's essentially the story of, it, it, there's there's hardly, oh, I, I don't think there's any dialogue in it. No, there's no dialogue in it. Um, it's a story of a father and a son who are on a sort of Arctic environment. And um, you sense that there's a kind of tension between them uh, through looks uh, between the father and the son, but you don't know what it is. And they sleep, and in the middle of the night, this huge black ship, ice-crushing ship shows up, and it's behind them, and they they, they don't run from it, but you see that they're, they're moving, trying to get away from it. And uh, it sort of brings out the tension between the father and the son, even to a greater degree until it finally climaxes, in a uh, sort of strange and surreal ending um, that is one of my favorite machinima endings ever. It's a terrific film, and um, it's a, an example of outside-in filmmaking because uh, Egils is a Latvian artist. He worked in... Uh, uh, he has an art background. He was a professional uh, graphics designer. Even today, he's selling paintings on uh, Etsy and several other places. And he worked with government subsidies to make this film. He um, um, 
worked with other professionals to mod the engine. In fact, uh, there's a great interview in submarinechannel.com not long after this film came out, because it sort of dropped out of sight, but everybody was wild by it when it came out. He has a quote here. He says, Machinum is more like a virtual tool or a feature set in a medium I like most, games. I'm not interested in doing Machinima with standard in-game designs, he said. And that's true. Um, they kept the engine. Uh, they kept certain features that they wanted to use, but they brought in the using Maya. They brought in the sets. They brought in the characters uh, and then used Unreal Ed to film it and to get all the cinematic and post-production things. The uh, story... Uh, interestingly enough, came out of a challenge of another artist. He was in an old uh, Riga City bar at the time, and another artist came in and said, uh, hey, are you a real artist? And he says, well, of course I am. Well, tell me a single idea. You have plenty of them. <laughs> and so he tells the guy he had a dream, and he it was about a father-son go through a never-ending field of snow. Night falls, they go to sleep. The father feels the ground trembling. And at the very moment, he knows that they're being followed by a huge black ship. The father wakes up his son. They continue journey on the edge of exhaustion. And he hadn't finished the story yet, but that was his response, sort of a challenge response to another <laughs> artist saying, hey, you got an idea? Give me one right now. And he gave it to him, and it turned out to be this absolutely lovely film. And one of the things that I think it did for Machinima is it showed, and why it's an important film, is that it showed that you can make characters in Machinima in a game engine that can be, you can empathize with and not completely, and have ambiguity about their motivations with no dialogue whatsoever. Because that's the key thing, the way they look at each other, the attitudes that they have, the physical way that they relate and not relate to each other. And then at the ending, there's a, a key moment at the ending where they're, they've kind of resolved whatever d issues they've had. And there's this pullback shot that just keeps going and going and going and going. And the set was composed, uh, in the interview, he talks about the set being composed of all sorts of features in Unreal Tournament and other games that they pulled in at the inside. And it's just terrific love this film a lot and he's got a couple other interesting films that he's put on there he has paintings he has work on um behance he also has a youtube channel that has one of his other uh very amusing films called how you'll love this title phil how i was drilling weasels <laughs> <laughs> there was also that was also shot in unreal and it's hilarious so uh, he's not in Machinima much anymore. I suspect that if he did Machinima, it was all all in Latvia, the community there, because he didn't share it anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a great film, and I highly recommend that you that you guys, uh, listeners, you watch it. Yeah, I agree. It's it's one of my favorites from from that era, and uh, it's, it's just extraordinary achievement. The amount of craft, the amount of work that was involved. Um, it's it's it it's always exciting to when someone has the right level of skill and talent and then is willing to do that level of work in service of a story or an idea or, or a concept. Uh, it's, it's rarely a letdown and this is, this is no exception. It's just, it's just a delight to watch even now. 
Yeah, I remember when the film was released um, originally, and I watched it then. And it was, I was so impressed by the amount of work that had gone into changing Unreal to be the environments and the characters that he wanted for his story. And um, thinking about how modding is now, going back then, it was a lot harder to find that content to bring in. Oh, so Much harder. Yeah. So um, I don't know where he found or created... How, how he created those characters or found the, the environments, but just thinking that how hard it was, that's another huge achievement. So, yeah, it's, it's an excellent film, and uh, the amount of work went into it is uh, staggering. I don't remember this one at all, actually, from from all that time ago. And, and when I was watching it, it was, I hadn't, I don't remember seeing it at all. But I, what what struck me was just how haunting it is as a as a... A story, and I, I had no clue where it was, where it was going. You know, coming to it for the first time, and it, to me, it seemed very much like a metaphor for um, some of the contemporary issues that uh, people are facing today around homelessness or hopelessness. And I always assumed the same thing. Ricky sharing was that this was basically the outline of a dream. That's news to me. I did not know that back then. Uh, I always assumed it was something metaphorical as well it yeah. very much has that feel to it it Talk. definitely did for me i didn't i didn't know any of the backstory to it i just came to it as a as a as a viewer really intriguing ending and to me it seemed very eastern european in the in the darkness of the of the storyline mm. you see a lot of those kinds of dark um hopeless uh, sort of stories coming out of that part of the world i think for, for whatever reason, I don't know, but you, you do see that. You see it in the paintings as well, quite a lot of the, you know, the, the, the paintings of dock workers and stevedores, you know, stevedores and mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things, very typical of that area of the of the world. Well, in the interview, which we'll link in the uh, uh, show notes, it's a very good interview, and they talk about um, the the interviewer was a very smart person. He says it reminded him of the Russian filmmaker Tarkovsky, uh, uh, Stalker in particular, which is a right. genius film. And he, he said, he had a very good interest. He, he says, no, I, I know that filmmaker and I like him, but that was not my inspiration. I wasn't trying to copy any of his stuff. But I can't help but wonder if influence occurs subconsciously sometimes. You know? I'm sure it does. Where even though you don't say, hey, I'm going to do this just like Tarkovsky, that those films, those moments might be stuck in your subconscious. And when you start uh, planning them out, they, they, they come out as a work of art. And I, I think that this is an example of a work of art because it has so much ambiguity in the story that you have to read it in. And it mm-hmm. also holds up to repeated viewings. I've watched it a couple times and uh, you get new details in the the way that the father looks or that shifty look that he has. He's done something, and you don't know what it is, and the film never tells you what it is, which I love. I think that is a marvelous thing. And it's also, as you point out, Tracy, a very Eastern European uh, style, that sense of dourness and 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 hopelessness, you know, in a lot of their, their filmmaking. Excellent choice. Well, fortunately, uh, uh, the, the film that I picked uh, is is 
as far from the opposite of, of Eastern European angst as one could come up with. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> this film is called I Built a 1,000-Mile-Long Hallway by Graystill Plays. And he, uh, Graystill Plays has, has been a, uh, a Let's Player for quite a few years, uh, with, but with a, with a, a little bit different emphasis. And this, this film is, is, is an example of it. In, in this film, he, he's dealing with a set of characters that he's created in The Sims, uh, The Sims 4. And he crafts these uh, psychotic situations. Uh, R- Ricky said uh, that it reminded him of, you know, like like one of the ancient, you know, gods of myth. You know, like a trickster of some sort, like toying with with the humans. And this is very much what he does. Just just laughing maniacally as he's building this contraption that is ultimately going to. Uh, lead these Sims through their own AI um, to the, to their death, um, and he follows every every moment of it. It's very nicely edited, so it's not extraordinarily long for for as long as I'm sure he had to film it to get all of that to happen. But um, it is a bizarre, and for someone who has a, a twisted sense of humor like myself, it, I just was almost in tears laughing watching this. Uh, now, Graystill Place has a, a number of videos uh, that he does in other engines as well. And the, the, the thing that he's been doing more recently is a series of, I don't know, I, I, I don't know how to categorize the games, but uh, almost survival type games. Uh, there's one where it's, you create these crazy obstacle courses and other players can create them and you can download and play those maps as well. And you're riding through it on a bicycle. And you can choose your avatar for this bicycle. So the one that he likes to play, of course, is it's a father riding a bicycle with a toddler on the back seat. But these <laughs> obstacle courses are made up of giant circular saws and massive hammers. And this, the player, if you make a wrong turn, you it gets diced to, to bits. It's one of the goriest things I've ever seen in a video game. And, and that's saying something because, yes. yeah, we all know where video games can go. And, and he's just, again, just laughing and, and, you know, kind of role playing at times as he's, as he's doing this. Uh, this one is, it was, was most interesting to me because it takes advantage of the, let's just say sometimes unimpressive AI that can happen with the Sims when you when you color outside the lines, um, because the Sims, of course, have all these. Their AI is based on these different needs meters, um, and it, that that was a big inspiration, of course, for the the movie that I made with them and that toying with that whole hierarchy of needs thing. And this is that, but turned into a torture chamber, and it's hysterical. And he's really good at that thing that he does, which. If you're mature, you probably won't like it as much as I did. You know, um, if you're if you're a grown up, a true grown up, it will probably repel you a bit. But if you've got a guilty pleasure sense of humor, yeah, it's it's really 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 funny. What did you guys think? I loved it. Mad scientist. Mad scientist takes a. Oh, he's just playing a, a godlike character. He's having so yeah. much fun doing it. I, that comes comes over in everything he's doing there, doesn't it? I love that. 
and it's in the guise of a let's play. But yeah, there's more going on there than that. Much more going on there. (laughs) Toying with uh, with them. Yeah. Yes, definitely a performance, not just I'm playing the game. And he's having so much fun tormenting these characters. (laughs) And uh, it is very entertaining. You might need to send the police round to him. I don't know. <laughs> his his comments, which I suspect were often improvised while he was putting it together, were were absolutely sadistic in a way that was because it was a cartoon like situation, and because he wasn't trying to create some sort of suspension of disbelief for a story. You were actually, you saw the frame of the game around the Sims frame. You saw the whole thing. It was a game. It was a distant thing. So he's torturing these things that don't have any life, you know. This is the facial expression of every single Sim that has to deal with a house build that I make. They're like, Gray, you could have spent that money on a, a plush sofa or maybe a nice bathroom. But instead, all you've done have created janky-ass lights inside of a never-ending hallway that brings me to my death. To that, I say, yes, I have, madam. On the plus side, uh, Florida Man's doing pretty good. He's halfway through the second floor. He's going to be ravenous in like 14 hours, and I think after that, he just starves to death. However, the glee with which he goes through all <laughs> in the mockery, the mockery he makes. He, the, there's the main character, which is this very heavy set person character, is closest to beating his thousand mile maze, you know, but he doesn't quite get there. And his his mockery of this character was just I, I almost lost my cookies. <laughs> he was having so much fun. It reminded me of those terrible American horror films, Saw series, where the uh, the person, the, the crazy person with the clown mask would put these people through these awful machines that they could die. But that was terrible. That was real cruelty because they were real people. And I hated that. But the distance that the game gives you allows you to laugh in a way that it doesn't in in the real world film. I just thought it was a marvelous experimental crazy idea that I had never seen anybody do before because you're supposed to be a good person, right? You're supposed to think, Oh, well, you know, get these Sims and I'll help them out. Or maybe we'll do a little crime scene and there'll be some crime in the police. So, you know, it's all good Christian stuff. This wasn't anything like that whatsoever. <laughs> he deliberately set up this situation for these characters to fail and enjoyed taunting them as they did yeah, it. So, with putting little tidbits of food in places just to get them to another. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Genius. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think it. I think it maybe it 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 tickles. It scratches an itch for anyone who's played the game. And had moments where they have a little sense of mischief. And it's usually triggered by, for me, it was always triggered by tragedy. You know, I've got a new sim and I've decided to have them cook macaroni and cheese. And they start a fire and burn to death. So something like that happened. And there's no restore from saved game in the sims. That's it. That person is now dead or in some versions of the sims. They later show up as a ghost. I mean, it's very more... So there comes a point where it's like, I wonder what would happen if I didn't train them in any skills. 
And and what if I didn't clean up any of the garbage that they don't seem to know how to throw away? What would happen? You know, and these are horrifying <laughs> like scenarios where you know you, you read a headline on the Drudge Report where you know police find house with thirty seven cats and you know six pile six six foot piles of feces and but it's like well that's horrible in real life but that's that's I wonder what would happen if I did that to a sim. What if I built a house <laughs> with no doors? It's like the, the very first time there, I've put two oh, people. Oh, or put two people in there and just did nothing because you can do hands off and not interact with the Sims at all, which is kind of what he does once he sets it in motion, puts yeah. them in their starting yeah. points, and then he just doesn't touch it. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's mayhem ensues, and well, he mm-hmm. takes that to like another level. Uh, but uh, you know, I, it, yeah. it occurs to me that. Th- the the cue that he gives the viewer to see it as comedy is when he brings in the Grim Reaper. <laughs> yes. Yes. Don't you think? Yeah. Because before you could say, well, this is just really cruel, you know, and there's why should I watch this thing? It's cool. But, but then he brings in the Grim Reaper, who he also forces <laughs> to go down the well, hall. The thing is, the Grim Reaper is actually a non-player character that that the game generates when it's time for a character to die when they leave the oh, game. Oh, I didn't know that. I yeah. didn't know that. But yeah, there was one point in this movie where one of the characters had died in his thousand mile maze, and so the Grim Reaper shows up to take care of him, and then the you realize the Grim Reaper has to walk the thousand miles to get to him. And yeah, you could hear him laughing at that, and I laughed at that. Yes. Oh, just crazy. So I think that, an unusual that, pick for me because I tend to, I tend to lead more towards. Uh, I'm a fan of narrative stuff. You know, I, I I appreciate artistic films and abstract stuff, but you know, you, what, where you really get me is with good story. This has no good story, or if it does have a story, it's not a good story. <laughs> you know, this is bad. This is it's but an again, evil it's story. guilty pleasure machinima for me, and uh, I. I I immensely enjoyed it and ended up going down a rabbit hole on his YouTube channel watching just in- incredible, absurd, and and hilarious hijinks. So I hope uh, hope some of you enjoy it with, with the disclaimers that I think we've put in place. This week, we thought we'd catch up with what happened at Seagraph Asia in December. Our listeners will probably be aware that SIGGRAPH is an annual conference on computer graphics and interactive techniques. The main annual event takes place in the US and has been running since 1974. SIGGRAPH Asia is a second annual conference that has been running since 2008 in countries throughout Asia. In December 2020, it was held online and included its first dedicated game track, although it had, of course, previously covered games in other tracks. The new game track was chaired by Ricard Grass. Now, for those of you with long memories, Ricard has a machinima background. He was part of the influential Amos Europe team. His film Silver Bells and Golden Spurs, which was filmed in Second Life, won a Mackie for Best Commercial Machinima back in 2006. And you can read more about that in Henry Lowood and Michael Nietzsche's uh, Machinima Reader. 
Uh, and he was also my technical advisor on the Machinima Europe Festival in 2007, and we've been friends ever since. So this is a great chance to discuss the latest developments in games covered at Seagraph Asia, um, with a Machinima hat on too. So, Ricard, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have a chance to talk to you. Um, I was going to ask, um, do you want to um, talk a little bit about what you've been doing since 2007? Um, it's a long time ago, uh, but I'll, I'll try to summarize. Uh, thanks for the intro. Thanks for, for the opportunity. It's just great to continue to be in touch, uh, not just with you personally, but also with, with the community. Um, so it's been, yeah, quite a long way um, in terms of work. Um, the one thing perhaps that would summarize it all is that like many, many of um, those who have started somehow doing Machinima, at an artistic or academic level, we ended up in the commercial world, and that's what I what I did. I started um, with using kind of um, out of the box standard games. I then jumped into virtual worlds, such as Second Life, which connected me with the opportunities brought to us by yeah by the commercial sector, marketing agencies, research institutions, and then I ended up kind of taking on larger, larger projects, and, and then I joined a company that. Um, does a lot of those, including a lot of motion capture, in the on the large side as well. Um, but that that's it. I I am and I have continued to be in touch with Machinima, though I said at a more commercial level. Yeah, and that's great. Um, you, I know you you've recently won a, a grant as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? That a very exciting project. What I did do is just that um, I guess that's um, in parallel to my work with with Machinima. But what one of the things that I have been doing is getting into virtual reality. Once again, as many of us, like you know, rest in peace, Hugh Hancock, who was uh, very interested in that area as well. Um, and I think it's a natural um, evolution. I think that the the fact that you know you enter into Machinima and you start playing with the language of video games and the language of film and then you i think by default you have a an understanding a relationship with the audience that is very unique because you know that usually those who are into machinima and watch machinima know the game that they they're watching um on screen so my point is that um that all is part and parcel of vr that understanding of the audience and the way how they interact they with content and and it is only natural that as i said some of us ended up there so i reduced my time at work to do a phd in in immersive media and one of the things that i wanted to do is explore how life experiences can happen in virtual reality and i, I won an award to conduct the research which basically allows what i call hosts to um let kind of manage a space and also manage audiences in 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 live scenarios within 3d virtual worlds or otherwise and when do we get to play with this? Uh, I don't know. It is it is research at the moment. So uh, I, I have completed it and it looks good. Uh, apparently uh, the validation is fine, but uh, now is when development should should go somewhere, yes. Excellent. Well, I look forward to having a look at this. Um, let's go back to Seagraph then. Because um, as I said, I, you, you were chair of the, the games section this year, which is a, it's a really exciting role to have taken on. What games did you feature? And, you know, how how do they help people make machinima? So the the remit and the opportunity was, uh, I mean, Ginny Chu, the conference organizer, said um, this is a new program. So what 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 do you think we should do? And um, what I was given the chance to to take on that, which is a huge responsibility f f for many reasons. But the 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 key problem, the key challenge that came to mind is to try and 
portray the diversity of the games industry in just three three talks. So it is practically impossible to cover everything that's going on in esports and mobile and so on. But I did choose uh, Naughty Dog, um, um, the company that's behind The Last of Us 2. And I think that that game, it's not just that it's critically, you know, has been acclaimed, but also by audiences too, it is so beautiful. It reminds me of a lot of the work that I did with GTA back in the day. And I think it's ideal for Machinima. So Machinima was, was part of that program, but in a, in a, in a kind, of, kind of a parallel way. Mm-hmm. Unity was invited to deliver the workshops. And of course, one of the key parts of my program was inviting the guys behind the Unreal Fellowship. And perhaps, um, I'm not sure if I should explain what it is, but it, to me, it was the, the one thing that it's, directly tied with the Machinima community and, and that is a very, very exciting thing uh, that is going on in the in the games industry right now. And what were their thoughts about uh, where Machinima is going? Or virtual, they call it virtual production, don't they? Well, that's the thing um, that I think is a, I mean, technically speaking, we're probably talking about the same thing, but virtual production, let's not forget that it, it is as much about developing 100% 3D content, but it's also about hybrid stuff. So in other words, you would bring in the actors and the backgrounds would be uh, virtual. But um, never mind, the process is very similar. The, the the way how you would develop assets and move assets or think about camera angles and so on, it is very, very similar to Machinima. But there, there is one thing that I, that I think in terms of looking ahead, and it doesn't matter where this goes, but there's something about Machinima which is quite unique in understood in the old, old school sense, which is that when you do a machinima and you use an existing game, you immediately uh, tap into the the pop element of that game and how it plays in the minds of audiences. And mm. I think that's something that virtual production will never, never achieve. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. As I mean, much I'm... as I love it, and, and, I, and as much as I think it's a wonderful thing, to the point that I invited these guys to the panel to the to be one of the. Um, keynotes in, within the program. So, so with the uh, the mega is it mega grants or the the little grants that you were talking about there, it's it's called the Unreal Fellowship. They give ten thousand yeah. uh, US dollars and a month worth of training to anybody wanting to learn about how to use Unreal in for virtual production. And are they are they sort of looking at indie creators primarily and just upskilling? And and if they are, what are they looking to do with the people? that uh, go through the fellowship program so the they, they you mentioned they have a another program called the mega grants yeah which I, is thought, a, I was getting confused a, there sorry but no it's good it's good to say that obviously uh, epic are committed to to all this um to to supporting the gaming the indie the indie um game developers and and that is a very very strong very powerful very big uh, grant scheme the unreal fellowship it, it is just to answer your question it's very very much about diversity so when when i had linda selheim and brian paul who are the people behind this program and um, they made a point about explaining that they wanted professionals because they had a few oscar winning people in their program as much as indie from indies from other types of industries as well like they had some some people from the theater world some traditional directors of photography um so it's a very exciting mix and i would recommend i would encourage anybody um to to have a go um but of course they they give you 10k for one month training so it's pretty competitive 
To hear the full interview with Ricard, check out our blog at completelymachinima.com. Ben's going to tell us a little bit about machinima history. What happened in March in machinima history? What do you got for us today, Ben? Well, history, that is one of those things where when you look at it on the surface, it's like, oh, that's not much. But when you look at it, how far it really goes back, you're like, oh, my God, what have I been missing? So in March, a lot of things is going on that, for example, in March was a milestone for some most notable machinima in the past with uh, Peter Rasmussen's Killer Robot that it was being prepared for a DVD release in March. Uh, the release date wasn't announced then, but it c- came to be very popular at the time. Uh, another one was Anna, done by Fountainhead Entertainment that Phil mentioned last podcast, had reached its 50,000 download threshold, which was very good. Uh, also, we had an article uh, in the New York Times in the way Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow and how it was made. It was also told by the, the creator that it, Machinima was, the medium was an absolute inspiration for him to create Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow all by himself and the team that was able to bring it to fruition. Also, a lot of press was going on at the time. You know, the Boston Globe also was talking about the premiere of Game Over that was on the UPN network. And also the collaboration that the Game Over team was also dealing with Fountainhead Entertainment, where they were trying to use the Machinimator tool to uh, do a tie-in with the show, calling it Game Over Machinimation software uh, that was released along with the show's debut. So, again, there's that intersecting of trying to cultivate Machinima in a different form with the mainstream, but also show like with the um, modding community, that it is possible that you can take your IP and allow it to grow naturally with the community at large if you are so inclined to go that route. So your fanboys and your fangirls can, you know, go to the next step and the next level of your devotion by creating your own little shows using the assets from the show um, in that context. Another um, article that was mentioned right at the end of the month is the Animation World Network also talks about uh, Machinima and also has quotes from Hugh Hancock, Catherine Anna King, Jake Hughes, Paul Marino, Frank Delario, and others, and a lot of pictures uh, to explain the story that's going on and also one of Strange Company's projects that was on the, on the production line but unfortunately never uh, was released was a Rogue Farm film that Hugh is doing with Antics. Um, it was one of those films that they were trying to do with the index software package that was just being announced. And he was trying to definitely incorporate it into his work because they, he was planning to remake Echaton with that software to try and give it a, a, you know, remake and just a redo. But again, unfortunately, that project didn't uh, go past a screenshot that we saw publicly other than that. Again, back then, the possibilities of anything, you know, we're very lucky to say anything is possible and anything that was announced was like, we never thought that would happen. So, you know, it's very good that um, stuff like that at that time was just really cultivating the community to wonder what what could happen next. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. 
Ricky, earlier you mentioned that uh, a lot of, I, I can't remember what the exact stat was, when, when you were talking about VR, and you mentioned that uh, a lot of that is done on a mobile device somehow, which I, I had, we were running a little long on time, so I, I didn't want to ask you about that then, but maybe I will off off mic. But it, it, it reminded me of a topic that we've been meaning to discuss, and that is, can you make machinima on a mobile device, you know, on a cell phone or an iPad? Um, and, and is it even possible to do that nowadays? You know, if you were to ask several years ago, the answer would be, well, no. But nowadays, it's, it's it, you know, is this, is this even possible? And if so, is it, is it something that's kind of a missing part of the many, many machinima creation possibilities? What are you guys' thoughts? Well, I did a lot of research on this, and I was not successful in finding um, tools or games that were designed for mobile cell phone platform or iPad platform that were machinima friendly. Um, I thought at least, say, Roblox would have something on there, but they don't. Um, I, is it possible? Yes, it is, because you have screen recording software, so you could take a game and then record the screen and uh, go back and record other parts of it and create a film. But being able to create a, a real machinima film that has a variety of camera perspectives, um, I couldn't find anything that would allow you to do that. So it was pretty frustrating and surprising to me when I saw that 90% of the Steam VR was all done on mobile. Um, Unfortunately, that was only data to me. I didn't get to follow that up to find out what it, what tools they were using in order to create the VR. I suspect it's all 360 video uh, focused, uh, but I don't know. That would make sense. I know that years ago, and this is at least 10 years ago, MovieStorm dabbled with the idea of a mobile version of their app. Um, I won't assume everyone listening knows what MovieStorm is, but MovieStorm was an, a platform similar to iClone, kind of more infused with a Sims aesthetic, if you will. And you could basically script and, and sequence animations together and get characters to do this and that, and and then set your camera angles independently and then render out the footage. So it's, a, it's a, basically a machinima creation tool without the video game. It's, it's just running in that kind of engine. And they made a mobile version, well, what was, what was supposed to be a mobile version of that. Um, and I tried it. Uh, but it was, of course, not not the robust platform of of the original. Um, very, very, for lack of a better word, dumbed down, uh, and very template based. So it would do things like, well, you can take a photo of your face, and then it will put that photo on some kind of a flat faced character, and then you maybe pick from a menu a certain sequence of animations, and then it will render it out. Well, there's nothing really about that that's that's machinima, frankly. Yeah, um, I remember trying that as well because I, um, yeah, I, I was using movies, the desktop version of MovieStorm um, for my projects at the time, and I thought, well, having a, a mobile version would be great because if I'm on a train or something, I can still, you know, work on whatever um, I was working on, and I yeah. just transfer it to the desktop. But of course, that wasn't an actual feature. No, it didn't tie in at all. I, I no. was hoping for the same thing, Damien. Yeah. Yeah. And of course I was using mods as well for all the content I was using for the sci-fi settings. And there's no way to put that onto the iPad either. So I tried it, but I didn't 
actually make anything that I would want to share with it. Yeah. Would you think you'd be better asking what part of the machinima process um, can be done on a mobile? Mm, like, yeah. like um, you know, you can do a bit of mocap, potentially. You can maybe record gameplay footage without tweaking it as such. Maybe just play the game and record it. Or um, you can do any voice acting. Yeah, you know, with the right microphone, yeah, there's you, there's some decent recording apps that, that work on mobile that for at least capturing sound. You, a good microphone's a must, I think. I don't think there's any of the phones that that are going to give a satisfactory experience. But then again, if you're on a minimal budget, you can certainly do it. This is going to sound really bizarre, but I, I went to a men's room once and I flushed, flushed <laughs> on to do my business. But, and it sounded like... No, the sound sounded like a spaceship launch. It's it's the weirdest flush sound I'd ever heard. I thought, I want to record this and use it in a video because it, it didn't sound like oh, a toilet. It sounded like a spaceship. So I, I, I waited for it to finish and I got my phone out and I recorded it doing it again. Um, I, don't, I hope no one was waiting outside while I was recording this. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's just gonna it's going to sound like it was recorded on the phone, but that's all I had with me because it wasn't anywhere near home. So it's not like I could run back and get my mic and then <laughs> do anything like that. But <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I used it, and no one had any clue that it was a it was a toilet flush. Oh, that's awesome. Well, maybe that's a question we need to throw out to the uh, listeners. Absolutely. To let us know if you know anything about, uh, if you know of any machinima that's been made on an iPad or an iPhone, or if you know applications that you that or games that have been um put on either uh platform uh, let us know about that i mean yeah, we're just do. idiots here we don't know what the hell we're doing <laughs> <laughs> well let's move on to our second topic then yeah um okay so you can make game-based machinima and you can make machinima with tools like unity or um, um iclone um unreal so the question is why make game-based machinima when you can use those other tools? What's the, what's the appeal there? Surely the, the, the most obvious um, reason for staying with the game is that you want to uh, use the, the game as part of the story arc. So you're, you know, you're extending what you're seeing in, in the game. You're using the, the cultural context of the game. And, and why recreate it? You would just extend, extend that arc in a new way. That's got to be the main reason, surely. It is for me. Absolutely. The, the truth is a good video game, an immersive video game, inspires uh, auxiliary storytelling. The other one I would think another would be ease. Yeah. Um, yes. Sometimes, yes. sometimes uh, I, I, I look back on, on some processes that I've had making machinima in games. And I, I don't know that ease is a word that would come to mind, but, you know, compared to like what Leo must have had to do to make Beast, cobbling a lot of that stuff from scratch because he had the skill to do so. You know, that's to me that that versus recording, you know, engineering some gameplay scenarios within, let's say, Grand Theft Auto and and stitching those into a narrative. That's a much easier process for for me. So I think a, a lot of that is there's a balancing act there. Of course, it's not all about being easy, but but machinima is a, a big part of machinima is that it's it can be done in a reasonable time, and that's not just how fast it gets rendered, 
but also how fast you can you can work overall. And game-based machinima does have some some big advantages there a lot of times. Here's a good example. Uh, Chen, who made uh, um, French Democracy, yeah, which is just beautifully covered in your book, by the way, Tracy, uh, Pioneers of Machinima, fantastic. Um, but here's an example of a kid who really doesn't have any filmmaking skills, but he's got an important message he's got to get out. He's mm-hmm. got to say this thing about what's happening around him, the riots that were occurring in France at the time. So he uses the movies, he creates this film, which, you know, if you look at it as a film, it's not really well made at all. There are a lot of problems with it, but that's not the point. He was able to put it together in what, what was it? Two days, three days, Tracy? Yeah, it was fast. And get it out, and it became a signal event. And people, Wall Street Journal was writing about it. Washington Post was writing about it. Yeah. His whole future of his life was changed uh, yeah. based on this film. And he was able to do it fast. And, and the idea was the point. And so that's what Machinima does. The... the quick speed of being able to put together an idea, a personal essay. Uh, here's another example. The, the young woman at the beginning when you first arrive at, at City 17 in Half-Life 2. She's at the gate. She's on the other side of the chain link fence and she's saying, did, did you see? Did you see? She's waiting Was there anybody for somebody, else right? on the train? Was there yeah. anybody else on the train? I want to tell you I've had dreams about that woman. <laughs> <laughs> Games create a fictional world in much the same way that novels did um, Mm. before the game uh, world. Uh, Tolkien created a world in which, uh, world building in which you, everything connects. The verisimilitude of of, of all the parts come together in such a way that you actually live inside of that world in your imagination. Mm -hmm. So why not make stories from that? Right. dry stories, applying them to a, a, a workflow with a bunch of 20 people who are all set up and you lay it. I mean, yeah, you can do that. But machinery isn't about that sort of professional workflow. It's about getting an idea, working with your friends, your feeling, uh, community. That's what it comes down to, basically. Don't you think? It's yeah. a community of people yes. that you share, that you, you, you steer your films towards, you work with, you criticize each other, you learn from. Um, I, I'm sure the ship inspired many machinima filmmakers to think about how they could take their, the game and re- repurpose it in ways uh, that they hadn't thought of before. So that's the key reason why you want to keep making machinima. Yeah, I, I'm surprised there aren't that many people that do work in Unity and uh, Unreal because it has all of the things that you want in machinima. Paul Marino sat down and listed everything that an ideal machinima um, um, uh, application should have. Unreal has them all. Unity has them all. But it doesn't have that community. It doesn't have that game world that you can step into automatically it is a game engine it's like the car with like the engine with no personality to it at all at least that's my hmm. take well said yeah I, I it also comes down to the story you want to tell doesn't it if you if only a small part of that game world is in is in your story would you use it then 
or would you go to another set of tools? That's, uh, you know, I don't know. I think some of the stories you see are made with a little bit of a game, but a large proportion of something else. I was going to say, thinking about the films we were discussing earlier on, the Hamilton incident, so that was made in Elite Dangerous and that it's set in that world. And so they could, in theory, tell that story in something like iClone, but then you've got the, you then have to put the effort into animating the ships and all the engines and all the dust that goes from the rover driving around and building the surface of the planet and the base they explore and all that kind of stuff. Whereas by using Elite Dangerous, which has, it's already in the world that he wants to tell the story in, the content's already there. All he's got to do is fly his spaceship to the location and then he can fly the spaceship around and it takes that length of time. And it's it's all right where he wants it to be. And why go to the trouble of learning iClone and how to replicate the look of Elite Dangerous when he can just use the game exactly as it is? Sure. Mm. Well put. I mean, the only other, you know, the reason why you wouldn't, and this was, um, I mean, I remember having conversations with you about this, is when you want to think about commercialising the outcome. I mean, that was always... Uh, you know, one of the big reasons why you would never use uh, a game engine. Um, not sure that's quite as true as it was, um, because there are different monetizing models now through through advertising, as we've seen over you know a good number of years. But that was always, um, you know, I, I, I think I remember a conversation with Hugh saying, you know, would you, would you still make Machinima if you had the the tools that you had access to now, and he said, I, I would never even touch it, the games to make the films that I want to make now, um, because I know that I can't sell them. And mm. and that that was a, a real disappointment to him because he wanted to to um, use the kind of game aesthetic, uh, but just couldn't make it work for for the stories that he wanted to tell. Is that a good enough excuse? <laughs> yes, I don't know. You know the whole. The for-profit thing, that's part of the reason why I think Rooster Teeth went off and really wasn't a part of the community um, in any significant way. I think I only met Bernie once, and I just they were in a whole different world creating a television studio and everything. I think most machinima filmmakers are not into that at all. They're, they want to make these things because it's a matter of personal expression. Hugh wanted to be a filmmaker, and he found that he couldn't do filmmaking in the real world because it, it was too difficult and too costly. Uh, plus, you had to get any entry point. There was entry difficulty. Uh, did he want to be a PA for 15 years before he got an opportunity to work on a camera? And then maybe somebody would, you know, he, didn't, well, he wanted to make movies right now. And he saw that possibility and jumped into it. Um, I think he's a little well, more than that too. He wanted he wanted to tell his story. Mm, yes, and you know probably better than any of us, Ricky, how it it works with with Hollywood. How how, how often is it that some that, that the guy who conceives the story that that's what ends up happening by the time it goes through the the grist mill? You know, it, yeah, it's, it's a whole it's different world run through committee, and and yeah, it's it's. And I think he, Hugh saw that and said, well, I, I'm not going to do that with some of the with these stories that are really important to me. And also uh, 
these are big stories, big productions. So I need to figure out a way to pay myself, not because I lust after money, but because I won't be able to finish these if I can't devote myself to them pretty much full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where the pressure yeah. comes to bear is it's not just about, hey, I want to be Steven Spielberg and, and live in a mansion in Malibu. It's there's only so much time in a day. That's right. And, and money is has a correlation to time. So if I want to spend as much of my life time doing this, I need to be able to eat while doing and it. Pay the know, bills. And yeah. The right roof my head. I think very much uh, that's what was at the heart of Hughes' drive for that commercialism, if you will. It, yeah. It's not a term he embraced at all or liked. Uh, in fact, a lot of his activism was was very much a, a, against that way of thinking, but. Well, ultimately, when you brass tacks, that's what commercialism is. It's, mm-hmm. you know, paying your bills with it, you know. And Absolutely. he very much that lifestyle, even if, for him, I think, it didn't have anything to do with mansions or or sports cars, you know. He would have been perfectly happy living in a little flat with hot water and a stove and his computer, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that was yeah. the dream. But if he could get to tell his own stories in his way, and I think a lot of people do relate to that part of it, um, but it is hard. It's it's hard when when it comes to to try and turn that corner and do this for income. Boy, it's yeah. There's some really yeah. tough considerations that come into play, and it, it it makes it very difficult. I have a theory, and my theory is that um, after Machinima Inc. Uh, died at its ignominious death, suicide. I think the notion of machinima became less enticing and interesting to a lot of people. And I think what substituted for it, what what technology took over, was the ability to actually make games, independent games. The platform uh, Unity in particular began this ability for non-professionals to create fully realized games. And I think the energy that was steered towards machinima moved towards actual game making. At least that's mm-hmm. a theory that I have. And mm-hmm. I think in that sense, it left machinima with less of, of a cultural impetus, you know, because why should I make a movie when I can make an entire game and I can be inside of, inside of this entire... And then the whole market for cell phone uh, games through indie be, just exploded. And yeah. uh, you could make all sorts of interesting things rel- with no no knowledge of code. So it was fast in the same way that Machinima was fast. So I think um, some of the, the impetus for making Machinima moved into game making and then into those games why should i go to the game to make films because of the rights issues well i can just do it inside of unity now i can make a cut scene inside of unity and that's my that's my machinima Mm -hmm. but i think the rights issues have improved dramatically today from where they were many years ago and i think people making machinima today can get into a a game engine and resolve the rights issues because there's a channel created to be able to do that today. Whereas in the past, yeah. I remember having a conversation with Paul Marino once and, you know, he was in the uh, 
Academy of, of Machinima Arts and Sciences, and he was going to various game companies trying to get them to create uh, models mm -hmm. for rights issues. And when I asked him, well, well, hey, how successful were you? He says, well, there's one company. Unreal is kind of interested. <laughs> that was it. I mean, of all of the yeah. game companies yeah. he approached, the, they were the only ones. Now that, that whole landscape yeah. is completely different. So I think um, absolutely. Ironically, to, Unreal led the way on it. I think yes, yes. Yeah. And so uh, the impetus wait. to make Machinima is still there, and I think it's growing. And I think, like Tracy said, we're going to have another peak in it. But I think that's part of the explanation for why people have moved towards, moved away from Machinima and, and moved towards uh, cutscenes and uh, uh, game creation. But I still like game-based Machinima. Me too, and me. very much so. Me too. I'm working on one right now inside of Roblox for a little promo for uh, uh, Completely Machinima. It's a lot of fun. I'm working on one right now in Red Dead Redemption 2 about two friends who get murdered by a drifter. <laughs> 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 All right, so we'd like to just again remind everyone listening that we really crave your feedback. We've created several different ways for you to get that feedback to us. They're all listed on our website, email, text us on the phone, voicemail, drop a line of Discord or on Facebook. We're going to be listening everywhere we can. We'd love to hear what you think of this show. If there's a topic that was brought up today that you want to uh, add something to or correct us on, because Ricky makes a lot of mistakes. And yep. uh, we'd, uh, we'd be happy to, to hear that. Uh, so, Ricky, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what to expect in the next episode? Yep. Episode three is going to have uh, M. Dot Strange as our interviewee and perhaps another one as well. Um, we're going to talk about his nightmare puppeteer, why he made it, how we put it together, how it's doing, the feedback at Steam. Steam has a really great uh, uh, support for its uh, game makers. And a lot of people have uh, commented on it. I also want to check with him to see how people have used it. So we're going to talk to him. We're going to have four new crazy films. And we're going to have a bunch of news. Um, and also we're going to continue the saga of the Vichyswa brothers as they continue on with their f claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but what we most importantly, we really want to get feedback from you guys about what we're doing so we can uh, gear our um, our content towards you and uh, find things that you that you are interested in. Uh, but it should be a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to it next month. Me too. Thank you all for listening and thank the three of you for uh, meeting here with me today. This is this has been great and uh, I look forward to the next one already. Happy to talk to you. Pleasure as always. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. Music credits. In the Sun by Crowender on the Free Music Archive. Surreal 2 by Crowender, also on the Free Music Archive. Happy Guitar Intro 01 by Taiga Sound Production. Filmmusic.io slash song slash 7085-happy-guitar-intro-01. License, filmmusic.io slash standard dash license. Digital Logo 03 by Taiga Soundprod. Filmmusic.io slash song slash 6801 dash digital dash logo dash 03. 
licensefilmmusic.io slash standard-license. Blues Sting by Alexander Nakarada, filmmusic.io slash song slash 4943-blues-sting. Licensefilmmusic.io slash standard-license. Quirky Dog by Kevin MacLeod, filmmusic.io slash song slash 4259-quirky-dog. License, filmmusic.io slash standard-license. Easy Easy by Crowender on the Free Music Archive. Runs by Wawa on Unminus. This May Be All Gone Tomorrow by Daniel Birch on the Free Music Archive.